It's been a rough couple months, hasn't it? It has. Politics have become toxic, confusing, alienating, divisive. This is not what I want for our country. It's not what our founders would have wanted either. I'm pretty sure of that. But today, I don't want to talk about abuses of power or the rise of authoritarianism or the sheer audacity of the commander-in-chief. Yes, it's been an assault, an affront. I want to acknowledge all of that. But today, at least today, I'd like to take a step back from the politics of our day and talk about choices, about how we got to now and where we might go next. I can't remember the first time someone asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I suppose it would have happened when I was very young, much younger than my own 10-year-old twins are now. And I probably said something like fireman or policeman or channel sales marketing engineer. (laughs) You know, as most kids would. But looking back across all of those innocuous questions and well-meaning questioners, I can honestly say that preacher was not one of the things that I confessed aspiration to. Don't get me wrong. I'm pretty sure I didn't have anything against preachers. Ken McLean was the minister of Cedar Lane down in Bethesda, the church that I grew up in. He was a marvelous preacher. To this day, I remember the Christmas stories that he told and how they managed to make my mother and father laugh so hard they cried. That seemed like a superpower. (laughs) But it hadn't really occurred to me that I might seriously follow along in that path, that I might one day grow up to be a minister. That thought came later, much, much later. I've asked the what do you want to be question many times and of many people. At various times, I've had some trepidation. I didn't want to force anyone to put a stake in the ground. I remember what that felt like, to be defined in some self-limiting way. I didn't want to do that to my kids either. As a father, I'm not really all that interested in limiting my children, but ask them I do. What do you want to be when you grow up, Naomi? I asked my sweet little girl one sunny Father's Day, not too long past. I think she laughed and tried to steal my nose. In retrospect, I'm not sure what I was expecting of a (laughs) one-year-old. Learning language probably comes before world domination. But I suppose you never know. I have two nieces that I've also checked in on over the years. One of them is now a professional dancer, and the other is a professional stage actress. Both are quite good at what they do, and they're both paid to do it. For the record, I think that they are amazing. But I also remember being perplexed at their choices, especially as those choices evolved. I suppose that my sense of pragmatism was being dented by the idea by the idea that they would still willingly choose careers that would never pay well. 
Why not be a doctor or a social worker or a scientist? These careers, and many like them beside, they all have stability, growth potential, and could make a positive impact on the world around them. But the performing arts, I, I, I despaired. Their choices were never mine to make, obviously, and perhaps because I knew I was being a stick in the mud, I never shared my fears with them, which is lucky. Because even though I meant well, I've also had a change of heart about why this question is important, and I'll come back to that later. But first, let me step back and talk about what it is that we're celebrating this week. Did you know that the Declaration of Independence was signed August 2nd, 1776? I didn't. I'm sure some well-meaning educator attempted to install that bit of knowledge, but alas and alack, I'm certain I forgot it. I had assumed that the signing happened on July 4th, what we Americans celebrate as Independence Day, but no. On July 1st, 1776, the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, and it was on the following day, July 2nd, when 12 of the 13 colonies voted in favor of a motion for independence. The delegates then spent the next two days debating and revising the language of the statement that Thomas Jefferson had drafted for that occasion. On July 4th, the Congress finally and officially adopted the Declaration, and as a result, that day is celebrated as Independence Day. For me, I like to think of Independence Day not as the birthday of our nation, but more of a coming-of-age day, the day of majority, the day America was finally old enough to cast its first vote. July 4, 1776 was the day the USA grew up, took a look around at the world it found itself in, and asked itself, is this what we want to be? And then they said, no. It was the day America made a choice and became its own thing, an adult. A young and somewhat clueless adult, to be sure, but for better or worse, an adult, nevertheless. In thinking about this sermon, I took the opportunity to reread the Declaration. The prose is some pretty purple stuff, but it clearly rings with that adolescent sense of surety, of rightness, of righteousness. And right from the outset, Jefferson tells us that we've graduated. Just to refresh your memory, here's how he opened. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Separate and equal station. The child has now grown up and claims a seat at the grown-up's table. It's at this point, I think, that any parent might express a bit of pride, even in an upstart, willful, and clearly disrespectful child. <laughs> Grudging admiration is what I imagine the British might have felt, even as they went completely apoplectic with parental outrage and despairing indignation. As any parent of a newly minted adult would have been quick to point out, Problems tend to arise faster than solutions, especially unforeseen problems. These seem never to stop the youth from charging ahead, however, even when the problems should have been obvious. 
We can see that shadow in the very next lines of the Declaration, the ones that everyone quotes. Again, just to jog your memory, Jefferson writes, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To be, be fair to history, these ideas weren't Jefferson's at all, but were lifted directly from the work of the philosopher John Locke, published almost a century before the Revolution. These ideas were the intellectual ferment that permeated the circles of the elite that had drawn together that July to throw off the yoke of English rule. They were ideals. The question was more how than if they would embrace them, especially the all men are created equal. Even putting aside the obviously sexist language typical of that day, I don't think it's unfair or unpatriotic for latter-day readers to continue to ask why Jefferson and his crew of conspirators got that equality clause only three-fifths correct. I like to imagine that Frederick Douglass, the great African-American social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, statesman, and escaped Maryland slave might have had such a question. The critique laid out in Douglass's 1852 speech, the meaning of, the July, of July 4th for the Negro, held that the freedoms explicitly claimed in Jefferson's great work were not, in fact, universal truths, but instead choices. Choices that can be made and then forgotten. His speech was and is an indictment, a ringing condemnation, a 95 theses attached not to a small church in Wittenberg, Germany, but burned into the door of the Capitol Rotunda. Slavery was and is a national disgrace, a scar, a hypocritical lie that lay across the heart of the revolutionaries' ideals. If you haven't read it, I recommend the speech. Douglass's clear and brassy denunciation of the hypocrisy that's embedded in the American culture six, 76 years after, de after the Declaration was prophetic, vital, and absolutely necessary. But it was also well-timed. After 76 years, the still young America was again wrestling with conscience, with the things that it had set aside, with the struggle that a decade later would end American innocence. That struggle has continued and evolved. It took too long to get from there to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And in the many years since then, we really shouldn't have needed Black Lives Matter to crystallize the issues buried under a white supremacist culture, to shine a light on the why of the criminal devaluation and destruction of black bodies that is currently underway. And so now, 241 years after our founding, when we ask each other, why do we, what do we want to be when we grow up, we're not being insulting. We're not being dismissive. We are, what we are saying with that question asked in a national context is that we are accountable for our faults, for our failings, for our shortcomings, as measured against our ideals. This is not unpatriotic. This is precisely what our revolutionary forebears did. This is what adults do. And as adults, as Americans, we have a choice. We can change. We can be better. We should be better.
We must do better. But first, we must ask ourselves, are we now who we want to be? Is this the America that we want? And if not, what are we going to do about it? The last few months have seen something of an upheaval in the Unitarian Universalist Association. We saw our first Latino president resign over a controversy of all involving racist hiring practices. Several other prominent leaders have also stepped down. As Carl mentioned, a trio of presidents, all people of color, stepped into the resulting breach and held space open while our denomination took a long, hard look at our values, our stated philosophy, and decided that, yes, we've fallen short. Fallen short of the very things we said we wanted, that we stood for, that we had resolved to address, but somehow had not. Reverend Carl has preached about the UUA upheavals already, so I won't belabor them here except to say that I'm humbled by the moral courage it took for the UUA to willingly take up this work again. And I'm proud of our own members for helping our congregation to learn and grow into a more robust and healthy understanding of what inclusive really means with their work on the white supremacy teach-ins. I'm sure Reverend Call and our delegates will have lots more to say about where the UUA is now, where we're headed, drawing on their experiences of this year's GA, so I'll leave that all to them for some future Sunday. What I'd like to do is take a moment to echo a popular theme Reverend Carl has preached about often and recall to mind the three evils of society speech given by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in 1967 where he called out three challenges holding back progress in contemporary society. Racism, militarism, and materialism. The UUA is unusual in its response to these challenges. Racism is where we're relatively strong. Though the tent is dramatically wider now than it was back in the 1960s, and in that tent today we can find tables for the women's rights movement, the gay pride movement, and of late, the sexual identity movement represented by those identifying as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, pansexual, polyamorous, and quite a bit more. The UA has programs that respond to the current political realities around refugees from war-torn nations, as well as the desperate and curious immigrants that have come seeking a better life, whether legal or not. We're making progress along many fronts, but even as I say that, I should note that we still have some significant work to do with the differently abled. Personally, I'm immensely proud of our work on these issues. And no, we're not done with them. But in the spirit of self-examination that I'm invoking today, of reimagining ourselves and who it is that we aspire to be, I'd like to hold the door open to both of the other challenges Dr. King has called out, militarism and materialism. There are real and important and timely reasons to explore these threats. And I believe that we as a congregation, as a denomination, as a nation, are called to dismantle them as well. But those are topics for other sermons. For now, as I turn to the close, I'm reminded of my family and the young women whose lives I'm blessed and proud to be a part of. My nieces are hardworking. Yes, they're tired, and yes, they're struggling. But today, they're having fun. They love what they do. How incredible is that? How many of us now look back on the choices that we've made and can only say, what if? 
No. I'm proud of the choices that they made. As for me, I made a choice 21 years ago to be a high-tech business professional. Based on what I knew and what I thought I was good at, it seemed like an easy choice. But it wasn't the only choice I could have made. When I was in my 40s, a young man, one we all know and love, <laughs> asked me a question. He didn't use the formula that I've given you. He didn't say, what do you want to be when you grow up? He used different words, but the intent was the same thing. But as I bounced his innocent question around in my head, what I heard was, are you who you want to be? And if not, what are you going to do about it? As many of you know, my father-in-law died this past December. He was a fascinating man. The thing that struck me was that he seemed to have asked himself this same question, asked himself, and then took steps to live into the answer that came to him, not once, not twice, but four times. The man had four separate careers. Four. With that kind of role model, I figured I was good for at least two. <laughs> Which is why about two years from now, I will seek ordination as a Unitarian Universalist minister. I like to think that this step is a fair answer to my own question. As for my daughter, I asked her the question again this past week. Her answer, I want to be an author like mommy and daddy. She smiled a shy little smile and came in for a big hug. But then, in a small voice, she added, and maybe president. <laughs> in a couple of days, many of you will be celebrating the 4th of July with family and fireworks. My hope is that you will and that you can take joy in that time. As Americans, we have a lot to be grateful for, a lot to celebrate, and even more to be proud of. That doesn't mean that we're done, or that we can remain complacent, or that we cannot be more than we currently are. Clearly, we can, and should, and must. My prayer for you is a little different, though. I'd like you to ask yourself the who do you want to be question not as a progress report to see how far short of your dreams and goals and ideals that you've fallen, and not as an excuse to beat yourself up about any of that. No, my prayer is that you can recall the sense of hope that new beginnings have, that you realize that the power for beginnings lies within you, that every day that we draw breath is itself a new beginning, that the choices that you've made and perhaps forgotten, or set aside, or pushed back down, or pushed out of the way, those choices can be remade once again. This is your life. This is your denomination. And this is your country. This Tuesday is Independence Day, a day of liberation and idealism. Red states, blue states, we are together the United States. And on this day, we do that most American of things. We question ourselves. We hold ourselves and our choices up to the light of a bright and sunny summer day. And on that day, we can choose once again to be different, to be and to do better. Amen, and may it be so.